Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. another episode of the Find Your Feed podcast. So I'm obviously Honey Alston and I'm excited to deliver another episode for you today. My guest has been someone that I've been wanting to get on the show for quite a while. His name is Landon Bannister. So Landon and I met at a National Parks and Wildlife Advisory Council meeting of which I'm one of the members and I sit on the council to try and help protect Tasmania's world heritage areas as well as the national parks and my role is to look in from the outside at tourism recreation and the way that small businesses and the business of parks itself is run. So Landon presented to our council on the concept of dark sky protection. So what is a dark sky? Well that's what we're going to be delving into in this conversation today but in essence it's the to try to minimize the effect of light pollution coming from our cities, our homes and our roadways. Because as National Geographic recently stated, our lights are getting brighter and the earth is paying the price. From our wildlife to our plant species and to our own human health and safety, light is affecting us whether we like it or not. For example, in Singapore, and I'm just picking a random place out of the blue, but in Singapore, 99.5% of all stars are completely invisible to the naked eye. In the USA and Europe, 99% of individuals and the regions of Europe is affected by light pollution. And a third of all humankind cannot see the Milky Way, including 80% of North Americans. So light pollution is on the increase. It's it's increasing 2% every year between 2012 and 2016 when it was measured. And if you think that the percentages are compounding. So light pollution is something that we are all affected by. I didn't kind of realize the significance of it until I heard Landon present. And I tapped him on the shoulder afterwards and said, I have to get you on the podcast. So Landon is the president of the Tasmanian Dark Sky Association, which is a branch of the International Dark Sky Association. And his efforts are to try and see Tasmania recognized as a dark sky sanctuary. But whether you live here or not, this is a conversation that you must hear. You must hear this to hear its impact on our health, but also the health of our planet as a whole. But before we jump deep into the conversation, I just want to make mention of Find Your Feet and the team that are working behind the scenes and beavering down there to ensure that all of your needs are met. So from online retail in outdoor equipment and apparel through to our Find Your Feet trail running tours and education and coaching services, we have everything to help empower you in your outdoor adventures. So if you need a hand or you need any equipment or apparel, jump onto the website www.findyourfeet.com.au. 20% off your first order, free express shipping over $100. And once you become a member, which you automatically will if you buy something with us, you get 10% off every future order with us. Don't forget too that our 2020 trail running holidays are now booking. So if you're interested in escaping, let's try and see if we can get in under a dark sky as well. 
head to www.findyourfeettours.com.au. And then don't forget my website. Obviously, the podcast is based off there, but there's also a range of education and coaching products that will help you with any of your trail running dreams. There's also my blog, and I'm also now offering more coaching again. So if you need some support, whether it be life coaching or athletic performance coaching, you can jump onto that website, www.hannyalston.com.au. All right, shall we do it? I think we shall. Here's Landon Bannister. I was doing doing my homework. <laughs> I had I had so much fun yesterday. Spent just about half half a day or more just like digging through all these interesting articles and videos and the more you dig the more you realize there is there but one of the um, quotes that really hit me the most was national geographic and they said that our lights are getting brighter and the earth is paying the price and i thought perfect i feel like that's like the place where this conversation needs to start because i'm really curious to know what are they talking about like what do they mean by the earth is paying the price Mm. <laughs> did you read the rest of the article? I did read the rest of the article. Look, I wrote pages written. of notes. It's mm. it's an amazing article, and I will put up the link to that for anyone who is listening into the conversation. Um, but I wondered if we could just more start there as a bit of a broad spectrum of like, what are they talking about when they mean the Earth is paying the price? Well, it goes back to what we said about the scientists. So the scientists, for one, are really up in arms, I guess, if you want about. Um, the, the one that put it best to me was um, a girl by the name of Teresa Jones. She's Melbourne University, heads up um, a thing called the Urban Lighting Lab, and they specifically just study lights effects on, on essentially creatures. She has a lot of insects and various bits and pieces. And, and she came to the conclusion, she said this at a conference in the last year, that she's come to the conclusion there's no such thing as a good light fitting in the outdoor environment. Every single photon's doing some damage in one way or another now. That's pretty profound when someone's saying, look, there is no such thing as a good lighting installation. Um, the dark sky movement isn't about no light, it's about responsible lighting. Um, mm-hmm. We still think we need light for humans, but it really does make you think that, geez, we've got to question everything about how much light we put out. So, I mean, insect life, um, bird life, um, there, I mean, there's so many good campaigns around the world. If you remember the Twin Towers Memorial, mm-hmm. the two lights shooting up into the into the sky and they had um, essentially it was killing massive amounts of birds because uh, it just disorientates them. They fly around around in circles, they can't see where they're going because they can't see the stars to navigate anymore. Um, they get exhausted and fall to their death. Uh, it took a campaign of basically volunteers sitting around for two years collecting data on dead birds and presenting that back to uh, to the bodies that be and they, um, and they got change. So they now turn that off at 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't turn it on during peak migratory periods. Okay. So there is, um, you know, this this effect on wildlife. It's it's everywhere. Um, we're talking about insect life in uh, Germany. They're, they're massively concerned there. They think that they've um, in the last decade they've witnessed a seventy percent reduction in the biomass of flying insects. Um, light pollution is attributed to that. We've got studies on uh, even fauna. If you think about plants, even need darkness mm. to. To evolve, so we know in cities that fauna is actually on a decrease because they're just not getting that natural light dark cycle. So there's a real issue with what we're doing with our with our ecosystems and, and ecology. We can even just 
break it back down to energy use. Like, if we're wasting all this light, or if we're having all this excess light, because that's what light pollution is, it's the, it's the inappropriate use of The light. excess, yeah. yeah. And in Australia, we, um, we account about 20% of our energy use to exterior lighting. Now, globally, the, the estimated figure of how much is that is wasted is 30%. So imagine going to the government and saying, we can save you 6% of your energy bill. Yeah. Just yeah. straight off the cuff in a, in a period where we're all talking about, you know, what's going to be the next energy source. Yeah, and I know there's like different types of globes and everything, but I was watching one of the videos and they said that if you turned off one halogen globe that was going for one year total, you'd be saving over half a ton of car like of coal. Mm. Like that's a lot, you know, that's a huge amount. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky to live in Tasmania where our um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions per, per kilowatt hour is pretty low, but, you know, if you think about states like Melbourne, it's, it's terrible um, in Victoria, so... You know, we, um, I guess we are, you know, we're quite envied, but it is it is important. But it's, we talk about turning them off, but we, we don't do that. You know, um, my, my biggest thing from a lighting background is that lighting's for people. And when we talk about energy use, we put so much emphasis on making light fittings efficient, but it's really not about making life fittings efficient. We can do so much there, it's, you, know, you can squeeze a little bit of energy. What's super important is good design and thinking about when we need the lights. And so lights are only, only exist for people. So there's no mm. other, other reason to have a light fitting other than, than human use. And we think about our cities that are lit up till, you know, three in the night, four in the morning. All night all in night some long. cities. But the usage of those periods goes dramatically down. So most places, you look at the statistics and after 11 p.m., the, you know, we start to have a big decline in terms of actual use, but we don't then decrease the lighting to coincide yeah. with the human yeah. use. Um, even basic things like using sensors in areas where people don't go into a lot. And these type of things save a hell of a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was reading about Times Square and how much lighting goes into lighting up all the LED screens and the lights that are going on around there. And they were saying that to run that through the night, you could uh, power 150,000 homes just out of the light alone of Times Square. Yeah, I'm not sure what people think about this, but I, I actually have an ethical sort of problem with signage and people taking over our cities that way. Because they own a building, do they have the right to then project that light into our city space and dominate a city space? And it is dominating. If you've ever been to Times Square, it's 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 quite affronting. I think actually New York City as a rule is generally fairly well lit. They use very warm sources. It's not overly bright in most areas. Mm. Um, you know, you walk into their bars and their restaurants and they use candles, which is fantastic. It's a beautiful light source. And then you get to Times Square and you get almost affronted mm. with this quantity of light that sort of hits you and it is all from signage. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've sort of accepted this because we had billboards and that was okay and it was a daytime thing. And now how do we make the billboards look good at night? Well, we light them up. And now we have digital and, and TV screens and there's more movement. And it's, uh, to me, it, it detracts from uh, the beauty of the city. And I'm not sure the company should even have the right to to steal our cities and, and use it for their, their game, their advertising space. Mm. And then that raises the issue of the LED lights and the LED pollution. So we've moved a bit away from the, the warm glow of the halogen into the more blue spectrum of the white LED lighting. What is it about the blue spectrum of LEDs or LEDs as a whole that have become a bit of a problem? Well, if we go back to the very basis of lots of people, we'll start there. Um, blue light and, and human health is an interesting one because 
we're diurnal species, so we've essentially evolved at day and night. Mm -hmm. um, our daytime sources are very blue rich. If you think about the, the we, we call it the blue sky, um, debatable if it's blue, but it's it certainly has a lot of uh, what we call short wavelength, which is a blue spectrum we're talking about. Um, of an evening though, we've been a hundred thousand of years out under moonlight and starlight, which is such a low level of light that has very, very little impact. And even moonlight, although we think of it as blue, is, has, doesn't have a lot of blue content. Um, the other light source that we're really, really used to is, is fire. So mm. the estimate that we've been out of control fire for anywhere between sort of 600,000 or a million years, you know, depending on which paper you read. And that has given us enough time to evolve and get used to firelight. So everything about our human systems is really used to um, this, this diurnal of, of very, very warm, very, very low levels of night. Um, very, very bright levels of, of, of a day. And we actually need both. Um, really important that you actually do get lots of blue light during the day. Mm. Um, that's where LEDs can be fantastic. But pretty much every LED fitting that, that, a, that a consumer will buy, anyone that's got one in their home, um, that blue LED, or that white LED, I should say, started as a blue LED chip. So it's actually oh, okay. born blue. Okay. Um, and what they do is they phosphocoated, um, which is the old, you know, the powder you see in the old fluorescent tubes. Yeah, yeah. Same sort of stuff. This is more of a yellow sort of powder mix, but we use this phosphor to convert the blue light and turn it white. Um, but it doesn't matter how much we're trying to turn it white, there's still some blue left in the spectrum. And that's where LED, you go, we go, okay, it's got a lot more blue in it. Over night time, that becomes detrimental to humans. We, we really, um, we've seen some great studies around the world. Um, and there's a, there's a guy again in Melbourne, um, Professor Kane and he's sort of study on sort of blue light sources versus warmer light sources and what it means to just basic sleep patterns um, demonstrating how bad it is for you. So that's the sort of first thing about the blue. Um, the second thing is if it's bad for humans, then you can pretty much guarantee it's bad for animals as well. Um, they've evolved the same way we have with their diurnal cycles of light and dark. And when we're starting to throw more short wavelengths in, all the research is pointing that they have a lot uh, greater impact on animal life than, say, long wavelengths like red light and those type of things. Um, going a step further again, we start to talk to the astronomers, and if you've ever watched astronomers mm -hmm. looking at the night sky, they always use little red lights. Mm -hmm. um, blue light also has a, has a greater propensity to penetrate um, the night sky yeah. if you want, so it scatters uh, into the atmosphere at a greater rate. Now, if you look at even a very good LED um, versus an old uh, high-pressure sodium, which is what we have a lot around Hobart, or, or even further back low-pressure sodium, which is those really orange sources. We're talking about something that's going to penetrate and create sky glow on a, on a rate of about two to three times greater than the light sources that we're used to. And that's a good one. A bad one could be even worse again. So just by replacing a one-for-one, one, not increasing the light level, light doing exactly the same thing, we're probably going to make our sky viewing a lot worse just for this blue wavelengths that we're seeing with LEDs. I have a million questions on that, but I just wanted to to just, as we talk, tell this story, pause on it, because I did notice um, that on some of these websites there were these amazing, like, graphs or um, images of, like, tape, um, sorry, the Earth taken from space and you're seeing all the light popping up all over the world. But um, when I was digging into it and reading more about it, they were saying that even when they try to map the light pollution on the Earth, it's getting really hard because they can't actually pick up a lot of the LED lighting. 
so it picks up more the warm glow but not this blue light glow is that correct look that's just the the technology that they're using um, right and yes it's i guess one of the problems we face as an industry is there is no set way to measure light pollution and stuff uh, there's great people doing great work um, guy by the name of Christopher Kyber in Germany is doing some fantastic stuff. Uh, he actually has a light pollution map that he uses. Um, there's also uh, app-based stuff where, where we as people and individuals around the world can actually go out and just simple stuff like counting how many stars you can see, um, entering that into the phone, sending the data off so people can actually start collecting and understanding what's going on around the world. I think, um, yeah, the, the technology is, it'll catch up, it'll, it will come. Okay. Is it difficult? Yes. Uh, even in Tasmania, we're, we're having a, an argument how we should measure the sky pollution here because there's very basic ways to do it. There's more complicated ways to do it. Um, should we not try to make it complicated or do we want everyone to sort of be involved and, and taking measurements across yeah. the state so we get a really good Yeah. It feel. just seemed like such an important concept because if we're trying to understand the impact that we're having on the dark skies and therefore on human health and wildlife, you know, when you look down at those images and you just see the earth so lit up and then you think that's not taking into consideration a lot of the LED technology and that's become such a huge movement in recent times. I hear, I, it felt like the issue is a lot worse than actually what you're seeing. Well, I think the, the thing to remember though is, okay, the images looking down on the earth isn't what's important because that's for a privileged few. True. What's True. important is when you're us standing here and looking up. True. And, and that is actually very easy to measure because yeah. you know, it's, it's a visual thing. We can literally count the number of yeah. stars we can see. Yeah. Um, the, the sky glow can be measured a little bit differently to the, if you want, to the, yeah. to the surface brightness. Um, yeah. And that is a good thing because uh, we do have a pretty good understanding of what's happening. Um, Globally, they put sky glow increase at about 2% per annum. Mm. Um, in the US, I read a figure the other day that had it as high as uh, 6% across the, the country, and in a lot of areas, it was 8% and higher um, increase per annum. Yeah, and then that's a percentage compounding. Yes, know? absolutely. So yep. it's becoming a huge issue. Mm. I was reading, too, that 99.5% uh, of Singapore can't see any sky, any any star to the naked eye. Yep. 99.5%. Mm. So it's like there is not even a night sky above them. No. Just a, and what does it look like then? Ew. Well, you know what it looks like. Just a blank canvas. <laughs> Just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glow. It's not even um, a blank yeah. canvas because it's not, it's not dark. It's not black. It's, it's yeah. actually it's a, it's this grey glow that we see in the sky. Yeah. Um, it's you know, bizarre to think about what that might actually mean. Like we don't know for people that grow up in that environment. Mm. Um, you know, if you go back through history and, and read all of the, you know, some fantastic quotes around the night sky and stars, but but we often talk about how, you know, it, um, it helps us to think big, it helps us to dream, it helps us to understand how small we are in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, we hear all these quotes and you know, here we are now in generations and generations. Um, you know, we're, in, we're talking now second and third generations in cities like Los Angeles and uh, um, Hong Kong, um, St. Petersburg is one of the worst places in the world where they've grown up without seeing a single star. Yeah. And what is it going to mean? What does it yeah. Hard to say. But you're, you're so right, Landon, that it is important to be able to have that experience every now and then. Like we were talking about, we've been on the road a lot and staying in a lot of big cities and hotels and really um, there's like an energy in the city. Then you've got the light energy of the city you can't sleep at night because there's a bit of a glow. We're very blessed to live on a place where it's dark at night. 
Um, and we came back and I could just tell that I felt like I was, I wasn't relaxed, like I couldn't settle. I felt really edgy in myself. And so we took the tent, we went out to the Tasman Peninsula, pitched the tent for the night. And then we lay out on the picnic blanket, just looking at the stars and then slept for like 12 hours straight. It was just like it, it earths you, it grounds you. And you do, it puts every little maybe stressor that you've got on in your world into perspective of like, yeah, this is going on every night that we're at home. Like every night that we might be watching TV, you're a little bit anxious and this is going on every night. And we forget that, you know. So imagine living in a city where you don't have any stars at night, you know. It's interesting that the, I guess the worm is turning. There's this, um, there's this term now we have astro-tourism. Mm. Um, I even noticed one of the cruise ships, um, I don't think it was the Orion or something, one of these big massive cruise ships, now has a uh, planetarium oh, on board wow. and a full-time astronomer. Yeah. So people that are growing up in this area are starting to realise what they're missing out on and they're actually starting to seek it out. Um, yeah. You know, we're lucky we drive in a car with one hour down the road and we've yeah. got amazing views of the Milky yeah. Way. But in other parts of the, the world, they don't have that. So they are, you know, they're planning their holidays around getting out and getting back in connection with nature. And a big yeah. part of it is getting connection with the stars. Um, yeah. New Zealand have been really proactive in this area. They've got... Um, like Mackenzie um, National Park with what they do there with their, they run programs through the night yeah. and, and tourists flock to, yeah. to enjoy these experiences and get, I guess getting grounded is a really good way to put it. Yeah, because New Zealand has a couple of dark sky sanctuaries. I saw on um, Great Barrier Islands and yeah, a couple of places. Yeah, um, that's one of the most remote places in the world. It's fantastic yeah. that they've, they've managed to achieve that. Yeah, and to yeah. preserve that night sky. But it, but it is like we're losing connection I guess, to the tapestries of our ancestors' stories as well. You know, if you dig back into all the stories, it's like the dream time and the, the night sky features in almost all of them. Like, it's... Yeah, yeah. certainly with the Aboriginal community. I mean, they are known as the first astronomers. It's 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 pretty, um, I think, pretty sad what we what we could lose because the, the depth of knowledge, to me, just astounds me if you start to... Um, There's a fantastic uh, paper done by Dwayne Hamisham was involved in it, uh, looking at Tasmanian, um, I guess, star knowledge, we'll call it Tasmanian Aboriginal star knowledge, and you start to read these things and just go, my God, they had such an understanding. Um, They didn't have the tools that we have nowadays. They had naked eye, Mm. and and yet they still had this amazing depth of knowledge. And um, to think that we haven't managed to capture that and that we could lose it is actually quite devastating. So. I think that's a worry. Even, you know, um, our ancestors using the stars to navigate. Imagine how important that was. Wars were won on the ability to navigate yeah. the stars um, less, than, less than 200 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So if I can go back then a little bit into the um, effect that lighting has on human health, and the, let's go there to begin with because I think it is an important topic and particularly this concept of the blue lighting. So I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier. So... Am I right in saying that the issue with the blue lighting when it becomes dark and we're using blue lighting, say off the screen of our phone, a computer, television, LED lighting, that it's telling our brain that it's still day, like daytime blue, that lighting? I think, um, to be clear, the research on this is, is still happening. Okay. So what we, what we do know is that we have a, a receptor in the eye that isn't visual. Um, it's called an intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell, 
which we just say IPAGC. So much easier to say. Um, and it, and we know that it actually feeds a biological pathway back into the um, superchiasmatic nucleus, which we also say SCN because that's much easier to say. Now, that um, pathway is essentially triggering light. The SCN is your circadian rhythm controller. Um, mm-hmm. So if you want, there's lots of um, parts in there that are, if you want, regulating your internal body clock. That sleep-wake cycle is pretty important to us from a health perspective. And we were lucky in Hobart to have... Um, Russell Foster uh, in town the other day. He's a sleep expert. Oh. Um, does fantastic TED Talk uh, oh. online if you want to look at Ooh, his stuff. Oh, I was stuff. definitely looking at that. What was his name? Russell, Russell Foster. Foster. Okay. Um, very charismatic gentleman too, which doesn't hurt. Um, and his sort of uh, philosophy, if you want, about sleep and how important it is to us about its, um, you know, we, we always sort of think of it as almost an inconvenience in modern society, sleeping, because it's time that we should be doing other stuff. But... Um, super important to our recovery, uh, memory retention, um, basically our health in general. And so we we need that sort of down period and we know that the light entering the eye is actually tricking that part of the brain, that SCN, into sending out the wrong signals. So it starts to basically tell us that, oh, you should be a bit active and that's uh, in competition to our natural sleep cycle and our tiredness and at the same time you've got your brain telling you no awake and you've your rest of your body saying you're really tired, you need to sleep. And so we have this you want uh, internal uh, dilemma going on because of this excess lighting. Um, the blue light part of it, I uh, won't put it down and say, yes, blue light's really, really bad. It's the, it's the only thing because I think we don't know enough about other wavelengths as well. So whilst we know these IPRGCs are more receptive to blue light, um, they definitely have a preference or if you want, they're triggered more by blue light, which is really important in the morning because mm-hmm. we need them to be triggered, because that's how you wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, of an evening, I think there's enough research as well that indicates other wavelengths can also be harmful. So it's not just about uh, the blue line, um, it's also about the quantity of light and duration mm-hmm. of light. So that's important to remember. So, you know, people that um, get it, they're, they're, I mean, I, I talk to obviously a lot of people, and some people have a natural thing. How do you, how do you live of an evening? Oh, we just turn on a couple of lamps in the corner and we have a nice warm glow and then you talk to other guys and there's always men that have those cool white down lights and they blast them at 100% oh my house is super bright it's fantastic um, and I think they talk like that because they're constantly wired <laughs> yes. they don't have the yeah. downtime um, yeah. but without that downtime and um, we get back to what the scientists are studying the animal life you know, we, that sleep hormone that we really when we talk about it so the one we really get concentrate on is that melatonin. melatonin yeah and if you want it is your body's natural antioxidant so if we're actually light suppresses melatonin there's there's no two ways about it mm. um, that's why lots of light during the day is good for you because it suppresses your sleep hormone um, people that work in offices often get tired in the afternoon because we need a lot of light to suppress melatonin and if you sit in an office block all day and you don't have a have a window uh. desk you're not producing enough light with the fittings that we put into offices and so people get really lethargic and they think, oh, it's just I had a late night or whatever it is. But yeah. if they actually go out in their lunchtime and just get a good dose of sunlight, half an hour, 45 minutes, perfect, um, they'll find that they don't get that lethargy in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, but if you do have that lethargy in the afternoon, it compounds, it flows into the evening. And the same thing in the evening, if you um, don't produce the melatonin, it's not releasing into the system. Um, you can hear how that could be such a huge issue for human health. So you get that lethargy in the afternoon, you reach for the caffeine and the sugar hit, 
yep. you still feel lethargic because you have the crash. You go home and you don't feel like exercising. You could then think, well, I'll just chill and I'll relax and, you know, read a book under bright lights or watch TV or something. And you, you, you are, you're compounding that issue progressively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. It just, it just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. Yeah. Because all the research that I was looking into, and I have looked into this quite a lot, I'm quite fascinated by sleep, is that not only is it disrupting the sleep-wake cycles, but it decreases the body temperature, decreases the metabolism rate, increases the hormone leptin, which is the one that normally suppresses our appetite. Um, So they're now thinking that it's affecting heart disease, diabetes, depression, cancer, and especially breast cancer was one that's had a bit more of a focus, and then not to mention the psychology side as well. So like a huge Oh, you're going to love Russell Foster. Well, it's everything he was talking about the other week. So I'm stoked. <laughs> I can't wait to have a have a listen to it. Yeah. But, but, but no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's there's no two ways about it. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. And then what I have been reading a bit about is the effect that it can have on shift workers and like flight attendants and hospital settings and. Look, this is a really, really difficult one. Um, and back to my work, sort of in the in the lighting industry, um, I don't know what the fix is, um, other than what we should really do is is stop night shift workers from leaving, um, or make sure they leave before the sun comes back up. Um, we have theories on how we could actually light spaces better so that people could still function in the night, but without disturbing their rhythms too much. But the problem is that they leave their shift, they go outside, the sun's up. Uh, and straight away... They're getting massive amounts of cue to suppress melatonin. Now, um, Russell Foster was talking about his work and saying that they probably have, um, if you want, there's a, a balance of your tiredness versus your, your melatonin levels. and So you might not have enough melatonin, which means you've got too much essential cortisol, you're awake, you're active, um, but you have enough tiredness to suppress that for maybe two or three hours. But then once you get home, you go to sleep, you get those two or three hours, then eventually what happens is because you have essentially suppressed your melatonin, you need to sleep, it's dropping off now because you're getting the sleep and eventually the, the balance is tips and, and your next period of sleep is really, really poor quality sleep. So night shift workers have a massive issue, they don't get enough sleep. Um, uh, yes, it's definitely linked to things like obesity and, and you mentioned breast cancer and I will point this out, but there was actually uh, a lawsuit and I'm got to really go back because it was quite a while ago. Um, mm. Because they had this link between night shift workers and, and breast cancer and we've, um, you know, there's been some good, uh, I guess, um, lab studies done with, with mice. There was a successful lawsuit and I believe it was in the Netherlands, don't quote me on that, um, but they had quite a successful uh, suit. I think it was 88 plaintiffs and nearly, it was something in the, in the 40s were actually successful in suing the government for compensation. So it starts to raise questions. And I know I was living in Melbourne at the time when that decision was made and my wife, who works in the healthcare system, um, just mentioned in an off-the-cuff comment at dinner probably a couple of months later that permanent night shift worker had just been banned in the hospital. Um, And I would almost guarantee it was out of that result that they decided that, hey, we know this is actually bad for our staff. We can't let them work permanent nights anymore. That's fascinating. That is really interesting. Wow. And I mean, I think it's become a bit more on the radar, but like you're saying, a lot of this science is so in its infancy that, you know, the, the, how long has the concept of light pollution really been an issue for humankind? 
so well, it's been such a gradual thing like pollution um you know the bigger cities obviously experienced it for longer than the smaller cities because it's almost considered a like a it's a rite of passage for a town you know when it used to get its first street light that was a well we've made it we're, we're industrialized you know, we're, we're a big town now and of course um it's the one thing i say to people is if we actually went back a hundred years and we looked up at the night sky and then we went to sleep and we woke up the next day and went to bed and then we went back down the next night and we had the skies that we have today and we looked up, everyone would be up in arms. You know, we'd be crying foul, what happened to the night sky? What happened to the Milky Way? But it happened so gradually that we didn't notice. Yeah. Um, how long has it been an issue? Yeah. Good question, isn't it? It's scary because um, I was reading that a third of humans on the planet don't even know the Milky Way would exist. Never seen the Milky Way. No, well, it was a fantastic story out of Los Angeles the last time they had a major blackout. And um, they had the emergency services hotlines running rampant with, with UFO sightings and this big cloud in the sky that was engulfing the city. Um, and everyone was panicking. And of course that cloud was the Milky Way. So it, it just sort of shows you a few generations removal from that. And yeah, um, we've heard stories of kids coming out to Tasmania on holiday and, and standing out under the stars and bursting into tears, not tears of joy, but absolutely fearful of this presence in the sky above them. Mm. That's just almost oh. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely, um, when, you, when you start digging into those statistics you, and hearing those sorts of stories, you realise just how big an issue that is. Um, and on like our connection to our ancestors and the natural world, but then also on the health side. But I think there's also, like you mentioned earlier, like that massive impact that it's got on wildlife. Um, I'm curious to start with the concept that Dark Mofo, which is a big lighting festival in Tasmania, is about to hit us. And you were mentioning before the two big columns of light from the Twin Towers that got put up. And one of the features of Dark Mofo that people come to see is this huge beacon of light that gets shot up into the sky. So um, is, it, is it a concern? I guess just a, that's a, just a little curious note before we dig into the bigger issues. Uh, look, people ask me this all the time, and I can always say that I would rather that um, Spectra be in the hands of Dark Mofo than anyone else. Um, they're very... Uh, aware of light pollution, very um, switched on characters in, in actual fact, and very aware of what that um, means to Tasmania. Um, there is no way that they would put that in a migratory path. There's no way they'd have it turned on during a migration period. They're very responsible with it. Um, so it's probably a good thing it's in their hands and others. Um, we can't be about no light. Um, we can't be about um, no art either, because there's a lot of good light mm. art installations we just have to be a little bit more considered about how often we need them. Now, I think uh, Spectre is, what, three nights of the year, or so, no, twice a year, so it might be, what, six, eight nights of the year, which is tolerable. Um, it's not a permanent installation like we had at the Twin Towers in New York. So, you know, people's need for light at night is, is not going to go away. So it's, 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 it's a really difficult question. Sport sliding is one that always gives me because yeah. the benefit to the community for people playing sport and being active and, and being participating is, is huge. Um, yes, it's a massive amount of light. Yes, there's some light pollution issues, but perhaps we just need to be a bit smarter um, instant switching, making sure we're dimming them down when they're, they're not on. There's a great racetrack in Cranbourne in Victoria where they do that between the races 
all the lights dim right down. Um, five minutes before the next race starts, the lights come back wow. up. But little solutions like that really yeah. go a long way to helping. Um, and of course, let's try to have the meet finished by 11 o'clock and then the lights are off. Yeah. So could we dig into some specific examples about some of the um, wildlife effects that have been noted? So I'm thinking at the moment about Florida and the little hatchling turtles. I think it's Florida, isn't it? I got that right? All over the world. Okay, all over the world. But Florida's been a bit of a case study. They had an oil spill off one of the rigs and the... the You know more about this than me. You you tell the story. All right, I'll I'll, I'll do my best. (laughs) Don't quote me. But um, but they had there was an oil spill and there was compensatory money that got given back to the community and it was given back and they put it into the um, changing of all the lighting along the foreshore where the hatch the turtle hatchlings were hatching. I guess that makes sense. And so the turtle hatchlings, from what I understood, they um, once they hatch, they know how to move out to the ocean because it always happens on a full moon. And so they get the light of the moon, they see the moon, and they walk towards the water. But what was beginning to happen in Florida with the change to the LED lighting, and particularly increased lighting along the foreshore, is that the hatchlings would hatch, and they'd look up, they'd see the light of the moon, and begin walking towards what was actually the urban lights. And so these hatchlings were getting stuck on roads, caught by dogs, dehydrated, fatigued, and many didn't make it to the ocean. Look, they've only got about two minutes to make it to the water. Um, and then their chance of survival after that starts plummeting. Um, so yes, absolutely. And there's you know there's, there's really good studies that show um, basically you just watch them so that the lights get brighter than that of the moon. They start heading in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, there's some really positive stuff uh, happening around that. Um, so UNESCO actually stepped in. They they considered this a big issue and they started approaching um, places like Florida. Um, but here, a little bit closer to home, uh, the Sunshine Coast. In, Australia was also approached and they have a loggerhead turtle population up there. So the Sunshine Coast actually, to their credit, um, wrote a lighting master plan that put, if you want an exclusion zone around these nesting areas where it actually said that you know, we need to not put a light above this height and uh, keep lights away, you know, one kilometre radius and, and all sorts of things like that um, to try to protect them. The problem there is that it, it might not be that close proximity light source. It just could be a big city, because we can see Skyboat from kilometres, it's such an intrusive thing, light, it doesn't stop. Um, so if we, you know, and we all know it, we, yeah. so you're approaching a city coming in from out in the bush, or, you know, you might have been in the wilderness for a few days, and, and you know when you're getting close to the city, because you can start to see that haze and aurora. So that is also a problem, is that we can't just sort of say, okay, well, we're doing a bit at the nesting area, we need to really think about it. Big, big kilometre radius around that area is, is also a problem. Um, there is a, a document, and hats off to the Federal Government, Department of Energy and Environment, um, have just commissioned, and it's in draft format, I believe now, um, but lighting for wildlife. Um, mm. And uh, thankfully they approached a, a company to write the document on their behalf, and um, the head of that organisation is, is a lady by the name of Dr Kelly Penderley, and she push back a little bit because what they were really talking about was migratory birds and she said oh yeah but we've got problems with penguins and problems with turtles and so she pushed back and so they expanded the scope of that document um so uh, hopefully that will be out soon but that will put a 20 kilometer radius around these nesting areas that actually starts to stipulate what can and can't be done um 
but it's good that that story is out there, you know, and, it's, and I think the turtles are the, really the poster boy of light pollution in the world because everyone sort of knows this story about the yeah. poor turtles and getting heading in the wrong direction and not finding water and... Um, I think that's given an impetus to other animals. Um, did yeah. you hear about the shearwaters in Hobart? Yeah, I was going to ask whether this was they were related to the lighting pollution. Look, definitely related to lighting pollution. I don't think we know why they took that migratory path because normally they'd head out to the ocean and they didn't. They yeah, inland. But so should we clarify? So clarify. So the shearwaters were found in Hobart and on the Tasman Bridge area as well, and somewhere where we wouldn't normally. Find no, them. no, yeah. and. and Clearly disorientated because they were just basically stuck on the Tasman Bridge, um, flying around. And um, uh, someone that we know that was driving over during that period said it was a it was a slaughterhouse. It was the density of the birds flying around was almost impossible not to hit one. And, um, I know that they took one out to Bonnerong, um, they rescued one of the, the that had been hit. And I think when they got there, there was already ninety four other birds that had already shown up. And I think the number finished up over two hundred or, or something ridiculous. But um, yeah, a very good example of how easy it is to disorientate. So were they disorientated by the lights of Hobart, which, you know, if we, we're probably one of the cities that has a lower level of light pollution because we're a smaller city and there is nature relatively close proximity to the city. Um, so the mountain gives a bit of a darkness element. Or was it that they were affected on their whole migratory path down the eastern seaboard of Australia? Almost impossible to say. Yeah. All, all we can say is that we know that there's definitely enough light pollution in Hobart that when they got here, they didn't know how to get out. Wow. That's fascinating. And then I was reading another one. It was about um, wallabies, so the Tamar wallaby, and they synchronised their fertility by fading light levels. And they had these two populations and one was near an army barracks where there was a lot of light and then there was one that was out in a reserve area. And they found that the one near the army barracks didn't produce many offspring at all and they came very late. So then they missed the high grass um, feeding time of the year versus the ones in the nature produced naturally, you know, came at the, the babies came at the right time and they actually all survived. So... Even just in like little examples, there's just issues going on that we don't even hear about. Yeah, I yeah. actually heard that paper presented last year. Yeah, right. Did yeah, I get that yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> okay. No, you did, absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. And it's just, but it's really interesting because it just goes to show that whole cycle of life just gets disrupted and, you know, mating cycles get shortened, um, even feeding cycles. Um, you know, the opposite is true with lots and, and insects and you look at uh, the spiders, love it, because the... You know, they have study spiders that live in darkness versus spiders that live in night source. Their, their food source is so much higher. They're yeah. like three times the size yeah. of, the, of the spiders living in the darkness. Yeah. Oh, um, Actually, just on those wallabies, I mean, it raises an interesting question too about um, light fences was something that was raised because we talked about wildlife. Oh, you talked about this in the meeting. Yeah. Can we talk about this? Well, it's just, I just think it's really interesting that they, they've shown that if we put, you know, a strong barrier of light, if you put a, just a stripe of light, as you would a, a build a, a physical fence, it has basically exactly the same So properties. like a, a, a line of lights vertically shining up off the edge of a road? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, so or down preferably shining down so it's not going up into the atmosphere. Oh, true, true, true. Sorry, true. <laughs> but, yeah, a but line, like of, a line light. of light down yeah. the edge of the road. If the you animals... have a strip of light, the animals will get to it and they don't want to enter that barrier. So it's a, and they just turn around and move away from it. So it can almost be used when it's 
that detrimental to them. They know that it's not natural. They don't want to be in it. Um, and they won't go near it. And was it was that correct in saying that New Zealand was trialling that? As they, they had that with, um, yeah, there's a, oh, I can't remember the insect that they were looking at, but yeah, they, were, they had good data on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, because we, um, we have a huge issue with the animals on Huon Road, just, just close to home, a kilometre from here. Almost every morning there'll be a dead animal on the road because they seem to get startled by the, the brightness of the lights of cars. Is yeah. that correct? No different to humans. Yeah, we yeah. all know what it's like. Um, yeah, so you get the car light and you, you just can't see, can't move, don't know where to go. It's disorientating. Yeah. yeah. When you're in a focused beam and there's darkness either side, um, essentially you, you, you are disorientated. Yeah, okay. So, huh. I'm not suggesting white fences should be, I just think it's an interesting thing because the last thing we're going to do is start making fences out of lighting and adding more light pollution to the world and more energy than we, than we need. But I just think it's interesting to note that animals have that sort of, I guess, understanding that they know that that's not natural and they don't want to be in there and they, they mm. move away. Do you know if there is any movement in Australia to trial the light fences along our road corridors? No, not that I know of. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe something we need to push for. No, no, let's not encourage it. Try other solutions first. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> um, and so then just on energy consumption, uh, there was a paper that I was reading in LA. They replaced 150,000 light bulbs and saved themselves $8 million annually from changing them over to an LED lighting. And I think it had a down lighting, so they put putting a shield to make sure the light was penetrating down and being useful. That's a lot of energy savings. So are we seeing similar movements in Australia now? Um. I always say this before we talk about energy saving, that is that the, the biggest problem we have is that CFOs, you know, bean counters, making decisions based on energy alone is really, really dangerous. So the first and fourth thing, most thing you need to do with any lighting upgrade, any lighting change is make sure that it serves its purpose. Mm -hmm. and its purpose is people. Mm -hmm. So you have to consider all the human factors first. And unfortunately we see a lot of installations in Tasmania is no different um, with what we're doing with our street lighting upgrades where we're replacing light fittings in the name of energy efficiency um, and maintenance because that's a huge part of the cost. We're actually coming up with worse results oh. for the people that actually have to, to live under those light fittings and I think that's first and foremost that energy saving is a very, very admirable way to go but, but make sure you've dealt with the human issues first. Mm -hmm. You will still save energy. If you upgrade a lot, I mean, most of the technology we have, um, you know, um, low pressure sodium, high pressure sodium, they're 50 year old technologies. So, um, you know, you're upgrading to something newer, it's going to save you energy. But you've got to balance that with actually making sure it's appropriate as well. So, mm -hmm. that's the first thing um, about energy saving. The second thing I said is that we, we put so much emphasis into saving every little uh, watt out of the fitting that we really should be looking at, at the bigger picture and that is switching things off. Um, dimming them down, um, motion sensing. And the bigger question is how much light do we need? Mm. Um, it, it's rarely asked. We often overlight. Um, we often, uh, in Australia, we have a, a, a terrible situation with our streetlights because um, the Australian Energy Regulator is responsible for street lighting in a way. So, you know, they give that to the power authorities. Now, the power authorities, the same people that are going to sell you the power, the people are responsible for seeing the light fitting. Yikes. Yeah, not, yeah. A, good, not a good situation. It's yeah. a terrible situation. Um, but the biggest drivers 
for these guys is cost of the fitting. So first of all, we're going to get a very nice fitting because it's got to be cheap. Um, energy, yeah, okay, we look at it because we sort of have to. Um, but maintenance is the other thing. So they really need to keep their maintenance cost down because that's where a lot of the cost goes. Now, if you're a street lighting rolled out for, you know, in Tasmania, you've got Tas Networks, how do you keep the cost down with maintenance? Well, you find a fitting that's one size fits all. Mm. So you get this light fitting that has to do everything. Yeah, so it's got to spill light forward, sideways, backwards, because you don't know if it's on a pole that sits in the middle of the road, if it's over on the side of the road. You don't know how wide the road is. So they essentially make light fittings that spew light everywhere. Um, but the good thing for them is that they only have to keep one light in the van. If something fails, they go off and they take that one off and they put the new one on and it works. The bad news for us is that we've got light going into your front yard, we've got light going across the road into the neighbour's window, um, we've got light spewing everywhere and it's energy that we actually don't need because mm. it's a street light. Mm. It's there to light the street and we have the technology where we can literally just put the light on the street and have soft bleed from there on. You know, it's, it's not difficult other than we'd need a host of light fittings and the maintenance costs then go up and so... Of course, they're not interested in that. Um, now, you know, if you've got at the moment, um, my street's a classic example. We've had the LED upgrade. So successful, in fact, that I now see runners using head torches because they can't see because the lights mm. are so glary. Um, even cars now drive up our road with high beams on. So I, and the first question you ask is, why even have them there in the first place? Mm. We would have been better off not having street lights. Yeah. Um, but if you look at my, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be quite a set off the road, but my neighbour's front yard now is lit up to a point where I could go and read a book in his front yard um, because he's got a street light that's facing away from his house. So this is like going backwards um, in his front yard. And that's energy that, that's just being wasted again. So. Yeah. So obviously you have your role as the president of the Dark Sky Association of Tasmania. Is that is that the right label? That yep. you, yeah. But you're also working in a company that is trying to work towards lighting in large, like I was looking at the Aquatic Centre was one of the projects that you worked on down on the waterfront. You've worked on some projects. So is, is your organisation that you're working in being contracted in to look at this sort of lighting issue or is there, um, is there an appetite to look at it? It's a, it's a very uh, sensitive position I'm in because I actually sell lights for a lot for living. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. my livelihood. Um, we have a um, very lucky because I used to work for a much larger company and it was very, very difficult to essentially have, have morals when you had so many mouths to feed and, and you know, mm -hmm. um, budgets and, and being driven. Um, where we are here in Tasmania, my business partner thinks exactly the same. He's, he's part of Dark Sky Tasmania and... We're happy to walk away from projects that we think are doing the wrong things and, and not be involved in them. And we've done that recently in a job in Launceston. That was, um, I won't mention the name, but it's a, a memorial where literally there's so many uplights and they're all shooting straight up into the sky. And that's just, yeah. you've got to ask yourself why. Yeah. Um, so, and, but the first thing we should try to do is actually take the conversation. We don't think this is a good idea. This is why we don't think it's a good idea. Um, so we're in a really privileged position that we do get into a lot of, uh, I guess, good conversations with people about yeah. what they can and can't do. Um, you know, we're talking to, to people about a penguin colony up in um, Burnie at the moment and how you can essentially understand the need for light because, of course, we're lighting professionals so we can deal with those aspects but then do it in the most um, ecological way. Like sensitive manner. Yeah. yeah. And I would have thought that's giving you guys 
I mean, in terms of a business sense, like a bit of a point of difference and a niche because it, like is there becoming a bit more awareness and movement around like sensitive lighting now in an urban environment well, i actually think there is but it's 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 slow um i mean tasmanians are way ahead of most other states because we, we are i think just by our very nature a little bit more um, sensitive to environmental issues the um the thing about what we do is you know is, is the adverse is also true with we also sell interior lighting and um, it's exactly what I've just spoken about. We've, as much as we've taken ourselves away from darkness, we've also taken ourselves away from uh, daylight by moving into build, mm. buildings. And um, so we we tend to promote more light for our interior spaces because we actually need more light during the day. Um, our industry's got a real chip on its shoulder, in my opinion. Um, the AMA came out two years ago with a policy statement about street lighting, and, and it was basically a health warning saying, look, you've got to be really careful with these particularly bluer wavelengths. Um, you've got to be really careful about how much um, glare and how much brightness you're using with these street lights. And the lighting industry didn't go, well, you know, these are doctors and you know, everything they do is evidence-based, so we better take this on board. They didn't say that. What they said was, what a load of hogswash. What are you doing recommending lighting and having a policy statement on lighting? We're the lighting industry. We're the experts. We'll make policy statements, thanks very much, and, wow. and you're wrong. And they pointed the finger back at them. And of course, the AMA had to take that on board and they went back and they reviewed all the literature and they looked at everything and they, they came back and said, uh, no, you know what? The policy statement stands. Um, we don't agree with everything that's going on in the world uh, wow. in terms of lighting. But we're talking about a billion dollar industry. You know, um, A lot of the people that stood up and said, you're wrong, weren't really saying you're wrong. They were pointing out a few minor, you know, details, um, which is specifically about how we measure blue wavelength content, didn't offer up a, a reasonable way to actually fix that problem, I might add. Um, but you look at who sponsors the lighting industry, and, and it's, it's this vicious cycle where the manufacturing mm. industry, people selling the lights, actually put the money back into to the industry itself. You know, it, It's not being funded by governments, it's being essentially self-funded. So. Um, when you've got major sponsors going, oh, we don't want this AMA yeah. doing this, and we're selling you know, millions and millions of streetlights, this could jeopardise it. It's totally the wrong way to think about it. And what we've got to think about is, okay, um, we have an issue. So we need to start developing better products. We need to start developing better LED technology. We need to start developing better drivers to give us more control and more dimming and all of these type of things. Now, if we do that, then okay, are we going to probably sell less lights? Yes, we are. But we're going to add value because there's going to be other things that those lights are going to be offering um, mm. that can compensate for that. And so rather than worrying about our loss of income as an industry, we should be thinking, okay, where should we be evolving to? What's yeah. the future goal here? Um, again, this is not about no lighting. It's about responsible lighting. So. And so how do you as an individual working in the industry, I guess, keep your head up through all of the noise that's going on around you? Do you just keep focusing on your, do you have a very strong internal moral compass and values that you've defined for yourself and your organisation? Oh, look, our business does. Yeah. yeah. And my business partner is just brilliant at it. Um, yeah. I mean, he's just, he's a quite a unique individual. So mm. it's not, it's not hard. Um, yeah. I, I think, and again, it's not hard in Tasmania is probably the bigger point. I found it very difficult in a Melbourne environment and even a Sydney environment and Queensland environment where um, 
one of the things I find most difficult is, is the time for conversations that we allow ourselves in Tasmania versus the other state. Um, I used to be a national sales manager, you know, I'd fly into all the various things. And there's one thing I can guarantee in Sydney is that I had 15 minutes to get my message across. And it was on time and then dun, 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 get out. Um, that was it. Uh, in Melbourne, pretty much fairly similar. Brisbane, you had a little bit more time. And then you fly down to Hobart. And I, I remember the first time I did it after being in Melbourne for probably five years and not doing any work in Tasmania. Flew back down here, went into a meeting, and I, you know, you get ready to go. And you sort of got that Sydney vibe going, and you're ready to go. And, and they're like, oh, so how was your weekend? And I was actually thrown by the question. You know, imagine being thrown by a question like that. How was your weekend? And you go, oh, uh, um, oh actually, actually, it was very good. How was your weekend? <laughs> and they actually took the time to have a conversation. Yeah. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is actually a beautiful thing. This is how business should be done because it is, you know, business is all about relationships. And once you're having conversations, you have relationships, then you can start to broach these other subjects. Yeah. Um, if I don't know someone and I come in and all I've got to do and they just sit there like this and, okay, uh, and you're just reeling off dot points almost trying to get your message across within the, within the time period, you're not building any rapport and it's very hard to say, well, are you guys thinking about these environmental issues with this project? Are you thinking about the possible consequences of the light pollution? Um, are you thinking about the spectral um, distribution of the, of the light source that you're using and how much blue content you very, very difficult to get that into a conversation and because you're extending their 15 minutes and they don't yeah. have that sort of time and, they, yeah. and they don't have the time to think about it. They just need to, we just need to get it documented and on to the next job. And I think that's that's kind of sad. Um, we are really targeting the lighting industry to, to get the specifiers yeah. to get the, and I think where it starts is really with the lighting professionals, not so much because most people that, that recommend and, and essentially put lighting into the built environment and not lighting professionals and that's important to remember as well because mm. it's a very small community but I think if we can at least start with the lighting professionals they do tend to be influencers so we can educate these guys and get them to start educating uh, the masses as well and then of course we need to educate councils and yeah. get them to start asking the right questions of the people that are putting lights in and, um, it's there's no one tiered approach but it's it's got to start somewhere, and, and I think it's starting now. That's I love I love the positivity of that bit, like that it that it is starting, and I could see then if you've got a state that has the attitude of being willing to listen, you've got a place that is does have dark skies still, and we can get to that in a moment about the um, World Heritage Area particularly. Um, and you've got an organisation like yours that's been led by someone who is open to trying to have these conversations too. Like what's your vision for Tasmania or even Hobart, like on a smaller level? But like I could I could personally see a way that Tasmania could lead, lead Australia through this. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the goal has to be that it becomes almost part of our brand, this idea yeah. of um, dark sky preservation and... and connection to, to the stars. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we, we have fantastic viewing. Uh, we've got a great astronomical society of Tasmania. Um, we have the resources already there. We haven't screwed it up. And look, that is the beautiful thing about light pollution. Even if we do screw it up, it's very easy to reverse. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not like in climate change, you know, as in like we can flick off a few lights and we are fix the problem. Yeah, You're yeah. fixing the problem, I should say. It, it is, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the most reversible of all pollutants on the planet. So it's 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 
that's the really good thing about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that should be a goal, and it, and it should be a short-term goal. It should be a long-term goal because it is about just making slow improvements. If we went around and changed every life thing, the cost would be astronomical, and that's not going to happen. But let's at least start to think about it now, mm. and as time goes by, actually start to improve the situation. So if something does need replacing, if there is a new development, whatever it is that we're doing, let's do it responsibly. And eventually what we will have is this um, twofold approach. First of all, we're going to be starting to see more stars and, and you know, around Hobart we'll start to get back some of what we've lost. Um, second thing is that we start to create awareness about well, why we're doing this thing. Mm -hmm. We start to create public awareness. And, and I can guarantee, again, it's a lighting professional Dark sky principles are usually good lighting principles. Um, people forget how little light we need to get around. And if you've just been camping, you know mm -hmm. how little light you need mm -hmm. to get around. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we can move around. Once, our, once we give our eyes a chance, once we take out all the glare, we take out all the noise, your eye is an amazing device. It can adapt to really, really low levels of light. And we can move around our cities pretty safely without having huge levels of light. And again, our friends in Scandinavia, they understand this. Absolutely. Very, very well. Um, the cities are comparatively quite yeah. dark to ours. Yeah, and I mean, people ride their bikes on the little cross-country ski tracks and bikeways through the forest with, mm. where there's no light to commute as yeah. they commute. Yeah, but I, I, I had a couple of questions, but I need, well, they're on polar opposites of the spectrum, so I might jump around a bit, but that does raise the concept of lighting and safety. I think there's a lot of people that maybe are nervous about the concept of less lighting in cities because of the safety element. Yes, and first of all, there's no, um, we'll, we'll talk, safety is an interesting one, and I think it's about, probably more about perception of safety than it is about actual safety. Mm -hmm. There's really no link between more lighting and decreased crime. Um, in fact, if anything, there's probably a link between uh, more lighting and, and more crime. And, you know, we, we you know, one of the best studies ever done on this, actually looked at all of the studies ever done and sort of compiled this, um, them all together and sort of looked at the research and one of the things that they did really interesting in that study was interviewing criminals and they said well actually no we love light and we hate darkness because if you've got darkness we can't see what we're doing and if we do need to see what we're doing then I've got to take a torch in and if I take a torch in then people can see that I'm there I don't want to be seen so they actually need light and you know the statistics back that up the more light the more crime yeah um, the perception of safety I think is totally different and People do feel that they need a lot of light to, I guess, feel safe. But um, it's a lot more than that. It's actually a lot about contrast. And we mentioned car headlights earlier and the big old deer in the headlight. Um, there's a great study uh, coming out of Melbourne. Um, our uh, lighting team have been involved. And um, I thought, you know, some of the quotes that came out of that study were quite interesting because it, it was, it was like, um, quotes like, I felt like a deer in a headlights. And what they found is the correlation between the brighter the space, the less safe, um, and they were interviewing specifically young females, the less safe that they felt. Yeah, well, I wanted I wanted to add to that because I was I did actually read I came across that study, and um, I was like, damn right, damn right. Like if I see an area that's well lit up, my first thought is it must be unsafe. Hmm. They put more light in to make sure that. Yeah, that people don't go there to, to effectively jump you or to have crime. And I know that for me, as soon as I'm on a dark trail, preferably on the lower slopes of Mount Wellington, away from the urban environment, I feel safe. So for me, yeah, I, 
I can I will avoid light <laughs> to feel safe as a young female who runs at night. Yep. Yeah. Because you become a, a target in that sort of intensity of a spotlight because the problem is that a lot of these things, the light stops very suddenly as well. Mm. So if you've got this massive pool of light, but they don't think about it holistically. The shadow next to it. The shadow next to it. Yeah. We have Liverpool Street and Homo as a great example. Mm. All those little nooks and crannies on the street that are dark with this ridiculously bright, cold space. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I watched that with interest because it was lit that way to encourage human movement and I never see people hanging out there. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. Mm. And I actually had someone step out on me once running um, not that long ago in West Hobart, which is, you know, a very well-to-do suburb of Hobart, um, and he stepped out of a shadow pool into a very light, brightly lit corner junction, um, you know, of the streets. So, and that was 6.30 in the morning, mm. you know, so... After that, I just avoided that. I went down onto the rivulet track where there's no lighting and just ran with my head torch and felt safe. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think the, um, you know, that contrast isn't isn't a lighting issue. It's, it's, it's also a, a built environment issue. I mean, the way we design our spaces to make sure that, that there aren't those little nooks and crannies for people to hide is actually quite important. Um, you know, if you think about how the eye works again um, and that how, how why is it so tuned to to night time, but you've got this amazing um, ability to sense movement in your peripherals in really low-level light conditions, um, and it's because, you know, whilst we used to be a hunting species, we're also hunted, mm. and so when you think about it, we're actually quite attuned to, to picking up movement and, and sensing things in our peripherals um, over night time, and the thing that stops our eyes from working really well is, is too much contrast um, and too much glare. And glare, again, feeds right into um, a bad light source, into a light-polluting light source, because there's no need for glare. Um, glare, uh, you know, if you, we have a, a field of view that we talk about, which is, you know, if you look straight ahead and you look at the wall, that's pretty much what we see. We see vertical surfaces. Um, so we have this band, if you want, that comes out from our eyes. And um, what glare is, is essentially light that's coming directly into your eye. Mm. Now, most of the time, we're actually ground dwellers. So what we really want to do is that light should be directed not into your eye, it should be actually directed down mm. to where we inhabit. And mm. so we have all this glare in our environments. And again, you don't see it in Scandinavian countries no, because they understand the principle really, yeah. really well. But the um, problem with glare is it really causes you to, to if you want, you, your eye shuts down, protects itself. So if we're looking to the bright sun, I squint. It's mm. basically that. So that instant of your pupil shutting down to protect the eye, protect the inner workings, it's such a complicated device. But it's like having a, a blind on your eye. Once you shut your pupil, it's like pulling the blinds in the, in the office. All of a sudden, no sunlight comes in and it's dark. Pull the blind back up, sunlight comes in, it's bright. Well, that's basically what's happening in the back of your eye. So you mm. see these glare sources in, in our streets and they, in your eye shuts down. Less light's entering the eye. Now it seems darker. Oh, gee, it seems darker. I know, we'll add more glare sources and we'll add more light. And so it starts to compound. Oh, wow. So the answer is never about more light. It's about the quality of the lighting, yeah. um, understanding where the contrast is and not having too much of it, um, understanding the, you know, the, if the glare's gone, that we actually need a hell of a lot less light yeah. um, and, and balancing it that way. And all of those things are those design principles that we talk about that, that really mean we can save a bucket load of energy, we can save a bucket load of effort as mm. well. Um, and eventually dollars, to be honest. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. In the longer term. Wow. So then that takes me way back to the other end of the spectrum. question that I had before is that 
are you finding in Tasmania there's an appetite to have this discussion at the levels that need to have the discussion? Uh, slowly, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the biggest uh, two two things we face are what we've just talked about: um, the fear of oh, we can't make our environments unsafe. So, and it's the hardest message to get across, and it's almost. Um, you really almost need to demonstrate it to some people for them to understand it. Uh, you know, I think if the state was run by young women, um, we wouldn't have a problem because, as you say, you actually know exactly what I'm talking about. But unfortunately, most men don't. Okay. Um, so there is a this issue where we can't make the, make it unsafe, and we need more light. Um, so we are fighting that a little bit. Um, the, the second thing, which I think is is surprising, is that we. We have to this idea that we're going to take away people's choice. Um, now I, I find that bizarre. They say, "Oh, well, you can't. You can't tell people what to do with their lighting, and you can't." But lighting is so, you know, invasive. What you do on your property will affect everyone else around it. Mm -hmm. So what they're saying is, is you have the right to do whatever you want in your property, but the people around you don't have any right to not be invaded by light. Mm -hmm. And so I can't quite understand that. Um, negativity you know why shouldn't we be able to say that person has a right to darkness why did why is it okay for the light that you're putting up here to invade everyone around you and affect everyone around you and us not to be able to say that hang on we have to put some rules around that and that's because choices are equated to freedom absolutely that's the human that's yeah. the human experience yeah. so if you take away that choice to light you're taking away my freedom is what you're really that's, that's the perception that's coming from the people. And I get it, but I don't understand why we don't think that people have a right to darkness. Mm. And that's what really does upset me. And, you know, as you explained with your hotel room, it's bloody annoying if you're living in that house. Mm. I had a guy at a, at a talk we gave in Hobart once that said he moved house because of a light fitting. He couldn't handle the light shining in the window. He complained to the council. They said, there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and so he literally had to move house because of someone's decision to put a light fitting up. Incredible. So I want to then use the last tiny bit of the conversation to talk about what the uh, Tasmanian Dark Sky Association is trying to achieve here in Tasmania. And particularly I'm interested to go to what we discussed about at our council meeting when you came and presented with your team around the concept of what, could be done here in Tasmania as a dark sky sanctuary? Well, we are quite um, blessed with having some of the most natural dark skies in the world and uh, we're actually quite known for having some of the most natural dark skies in the world, which is fantastic because I had no idea. Um, are they unaffected? Like, can we go as far as say they're perfect? <laughs> uh, in some parts of the state, yes, they are. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, because Hobart's what, a 200,000, 225,000 now city, um, we simply uh, are lucky enough that we're not big enough that our light pollution is, is spread all over the state. Um, so we can look at the Tasmanian World Wilderness Heritage Area and there, if you're looking at the central core of that, it's pristine darkness. There are so few lights in that area, there's so few infrastructure um, that we can literally look up and see the sky as nature intended it. And I think that's a you know, just a beautiful thing. And, and anyone that's walked the overland track knows exactly what we're talking about. It's just absolutely stunning to stand up on mm. those planos and look up. Um, I used to be a fisherman when I was younger, and the number of fish I missed 
because I was out at night fishing land and I'd just get sidetracked and my head just slowly drift up and I'd look up yeah. at the stars. And <laughs> yeah, the number of times I've tripped over because <laughs> you're running along a trail and then you just look up for a moment, moment and it's just you're in awe. Mm. You're in awe. It's incredible. Yeah. So we are really lucky. Um, I think we'll, we'll look at this two ways. I think what we um, want as an organisation is we love to get that area protected. So... By that, what we mean is some type of um, dark sky place designation, and, and ideally, if we, we talk about the Twa, then the a sanctuary is ideal because it is a remote location. It's absolutely pristine. Yeah, a world heritage area. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. so, if we work uh, around that, what that really means is is setting up a, a space where um, people around to come and enjoy the darkness. Um, there's some rules about the type of lighting that can go in there, um, and preferably, you know, we don't put too much light in there at all. Mm. Um, and there's a little bit of education around what it is means to be a dark sky place in the sense what is it we're trying to do here yeah um and i think that's where i really am interested because i mean it'd be fantastic to protect it it'd be fantastic to have that asset for tasmania and i think again it becomes part of our brand it becomes a tourist attraction if you want in a way but it's attracting tourists that are you know astronomers if you want that are already have this natural environmental I guess, yeah that are connected instinct. to the natural environment yeah, they're not going yeah. to destroy it yeah and you think they're going to enhance it um, it's also very good off-peak tourism because yeah. it's generally better during winter um, it's overnight tourism um, because people need to, yeah. <laughs> to stay in the evening because it's, a, it's an evening event so it's, it's an interesting form of tourism and, and a tourist attraction if you want if we can get this off the ground the second thing is that that whole education, though, and actually having something like in the state and people being aware that it's an asset that we have to protect because the question is, why protect it? Why do we need a park? Um, and now the reality is we already have light pollution from Hobart starting to creep in to the bottom edges of our wilderness world heritage area and the same from Launceston. So already we're starting to see the decisions we're making in Greater Hobart affecting this the environment. heritage area. Hopefully what we see is that we actually get a little bit of state ownership. We start to take pride as Tasmanians and go, okay, if we've got this this century, if we've got this wonderful asset here, maybe it helps speed up that process where we all start to become a little bit aware that it's not something to be taken for the granted, a dark sky. It's something that you actually have to work at. It's something that you have to actually make responsible decisions around to preserve and improve. Yeah. And there's some really good case studies out there now, like National Monument in America, where it is a dark sky sanctuary and their visitation numbers are just, you know, climbing, but in a really positive way, in a sustainable way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's, um, it just goes to show again, particularly in the US, where we, we know that, you know, massive uh, number of population can't see a star at night. They're, they're actually seeking that connection yeah. to nature. Um, and it's not like it's a big deviation from where we're at. I mean, we... Tasmania as a brand is pure, you know, we always talk about pure Tasmania, discover Tasmania and this this is just it's just an an extra, like a like a big extra. It could be a big extra, but like a, a beautiful add on to that brand that's already there. Yeah. So Oh look, I mean we I spoke to a lady who jumped off the plane from Sydney um, a couple of weeks back and that's the first thing she said she flew in Friday night and oh wow, you've got stars in Hobart. <laughs> Yeah, well, everywhere has stars. It but, yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. should be part of a brand. I know yeah. um, there was a good ad done by uh, Spirit of Tasmania last year, and it's sort of, you know, it, it was showing the stars and yeah. come and enjoy the wonder of, of Tasmania. Yeah, so and this, it's the idea, I think, is there. It's just yeah. embedded. We've we, we probably just got to, I hate 
hope so. Have a light bulb moment. Yes, I was going to say flick a switch. <laughs> so no puns intended. Probably the wrong thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it, it really, uh, I mean, that is what we ultimately want. So this, this becomes part of what Tasmanians take a bit of ownership about. And it yeah. becomes part of who we are, part of our makeup. Thinking yeah. about Because I, I think we do. I think we we have this natural um, you know, sort of drive to protect this beautiful state. Yeah. Um, and it'd be lovely if we all we had to do was think about it as a 24-hour proposition rather than just a daytime proposition. Yeah. So the Dark Sky Association of Tasmania is a branch. It's a, cha a chapter of the International so, Dark Sky yeah, Association. Yeah, we actually started ourselves um, as a chapter of the IDA, which is mm -hmm. the International Dark Skies Association. So that's, the if you want, the world's premier body in fighting light pollution. Um, we also then um, incorporated an association um, just mm. for, for the goals that we, we have and what we're trying to achieve. Um, we thought that was beneficial. <laughs> we, mm. um, and as I said earlier, the other thing we've done is uh, there's been an Australasian dark sky alliance mm. formed. And I think that's just purely out of we had so many people doing great things. In, uh, you know, we've got an application at the moment for a dark sky reserve in South Australia. They're strongly mm. looking at another one in Queensland, having just got their first century. Obviously, Warren Bungles in New South Wales. Um, what they're doing in Western Australia, they've got a little astro-tourism industry that's, that's just starting mm -hmm. to, to blossom there. So there's great things happening all over um, and in New Zealand, as we've already discussed. Um, but there's the idea of actually bringing these people together and actually starting to share resources yeah. and have common, uh, if you want, common goals and a common hub um, to feed uh, off each other. It's yeah. a great concept, and so that's been really exciting to be part of that as well yeah and it's nice to mention that it's not like whilst we've talked a lot about tasmania because that's obviously close to home for us but that i mean anyone listening in who doesn't live in tasmania can realize that there's a lot of really good work going on elsewhere as well yeah so my question really is like what can we do as individuals to both support your vision and um and the concept of reducing dark like light pollution i should say um, and then I think then the corollary question to that is what what are the little things that we can do even within our own home environment or work environment? So well, I think if you're listening to your podcast, then it's a good start <laughs> because you're becoming aware of the issue and you know um, sharing it with others. Um, you know, if you if you uh, look at our website, darkskytasmania.org, there's some good resources there if you want to yeah. know a little bit more. But uh, you know. Awareness and talking about it is where it really starts in, in Tasmania. Um, yeah. And from there on, um, you know, we all have influence, and, and even if it's just from in your own home, then the simplest thing you can do is if you've got your lights on in your house, make sure your blinds are pulled down. Um, if you go around your house and, and you, um, we always talk about light above the horizontal, but if you've got a light fitting and you turn it on and you see that some of the light's going up, change that light for something that just throws the light down. Um, question how much light do you need if you've got big floodlights around your house do you really need those big floodlights or could you tone it back to mm. something a little bit softer um, start questioning how much light we need turning switches off um, putting things on sensors timers all of those little things just little incremental um, sort of changes help. yeah it was funny because um i hadn't you know i hadn't met you yet i hadn't listened to your presentation yet and we already we eat dinner by candlelight um, we've got a couple, we've got two lamps in the house that we use um, if we need to. But uh, I have like a little LED lantern, like, and we sell, we actually sell them at Find Your Feet. And um, it's what I read by I, if I need to go to the bathroom in the night, I pick it up and I, 
you know, walk with it down to go to the bathroom rather than turn on lights. Um, if I get up early in the morning, which I normally do, and I want to make a cup of tea at sort of 5, 5.30 in the morning, I take my lantern, I sit it on the kitchen bench, and it just throws enough light to, you can turn it up really bright, but I just always have it on the lowest setting. And I charge it like once a month, you know, I use it every day. Uh, so it was funny, like, we, I think we kind of naturally progressed to realizing that the light was affecting our sleep-wake cycles and just the, it felt like it was invading on our our wells and our relationship in some ways. And um, so, yeah, it, so, but once you start making that shift, it becomes more intimate and more, you just feel more cozy in your own environment. So, yeah, I encourage people to have candlelit dinners. Look, you, you, it's great that you get it. Um, as I say, unfortunately, not everyone does, but it, it is. Um, and candlelight on a human face, there's nothing more beautiful as a light source. I completely people agree. It just looks so, I don't know, delicious. Um, yeah. The light of a candle. Um, well, and generally, the further you get away from the equator, the more people understand it um, and the more access you have to sunlight, I guess, the yeah. less intrinsic it becomes and I think again probably your time in Sweden probably really yeah. helped because I Absolutely. know they all by candlelight. And it's they, beautiful and you walk down the street and you can see the little the, flicker of yeah. the candles in everyone's houses and it's, it's gorgeous. You just got to go to Ikea and you see the packs and packs <laughs> and packs of candles that are everywhere but um yeah uh Landon today is just I've absolutely loved this conversation like I really have I I'm so grateful that Tazzy has someone like yourself and your business partner, or your like the person you work for. What's his name? That's Stuart's my Stuart. business partner. But so there's Stuart. also we've got a, I mean yeah. we've got a board of seven people that and are just team. passionate. And yeah. I think what's interesting is they they're all from the design community in a way. We've got landscape architects, architects. Yeah. Um, we've got artists. Yeah. Um, and it's it's great that you know you get all these diversities of backgrounds that, that yeah. actually care. I just I feel so I'm, I just feel excited and I feel excited that Tasmania has an opportunity to become a case study a success case study because I do think that change happens when people can trust the change works so I'm really excited about that I'm going to put up a lot of the links that we've mentioned and even the stuff that I've been reading to prepare for today uh, in the show notes for it because there's some phenomenal photos as well even if you don't want to go in and read just go and look at the imagery. And um, one that just is vivid in my brain, not just the map of the world and the lights that you can see from space, but there was one, I think it was of LA, um, and it looks like the most beautiful sunrise. And you, the image is taken from these sort of slightly darker hills and you see this big sunrise and then they say, this isn't a sunrise, this is the night sky. And it just, it blows your mind. Mm. So I think, you know, coming from Tassie, we yeah, are from like 80 kilometres away too, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, it might have been 80 miles. It just it looked like this. <laughs> it looked like the sunrise this morning and it was it was the night sky. Mm. So um, there's images of, yeah, Times Square. There's images of, like, looking straight up these massive apartment buildings from little, like, courtyards in the middle of the apartment buildings in Hong Kong. So... I'm going to put up all the links to it all. There'll be a, quite a lot of them, but I encourage people just to, to dig around one night rather than maybe watching a movie or something and just it, and show your kids. Like, kids love this kind of stuff. They're fascinated by night sky and lighting and, um, you know, get, get your family involved because it is such a simple thing that you can do to make small changes in your own home. Um, and then, yeah, Keep me in mind because I want to know how we're going with the sanctuary concept with the Twa, the World Heritage Area. Like I will 
do my absolute best to push heaven and earth to make that happen because I just think it's such a golden opportunity for Tasmania. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.